Hello, Christ Prez. The entire Christian life is meant to lead us into Christ-like humility. That's what we're exploring in this series of messages during our humility deep dive. And last week, we looked at how Jesus sends us out on mission to humbly love others in word and in deed. And we saw that a crucial part of participating in this mission is being with Jesus. Well, today we're going to look more closely at this call of discipleship, this call to follow Jesus. What becomes clear when we read the Gospels is that the disciples all have a basic misunderstanding about what following Jesus involves. They think that following Jesus is going to lead them to greatness and majesty and glory. And as we'll see, uh, that's actually right as far as it goes. But the problem is their ideas about greatness don't match Jesus' ideas about greatness. Their vision of glory uh, has to be completely reworked and redefined according to the path that Jesus is on. What path is Jesus on? Well, we see in verse 51 of our passage that he's on his way to Jerusalem. He has set his face toward Jerusalem. Uh, this is his destination and goal. And he's already told his disciples that what awaits him there um, is suffering. Uh, he's told his, his disciples that he will suffer many things and be rejected and killed. And he's already told his disciples that following him means nothing less than self-denial and cross-bearing. But they don't understand. Uh, they don't get it. And I'm not sure that I get it either. And I don't know that we get it. I mean, they have a vision of what it means to follow the Messiah. And it doesn't match Jesus' vision. They want to follow Jesus to the greatness and glory of power and victory and self-exaltation. And Jesus is leading them to the greatness and glory of humility. Well, let's dig into our passage by looking at what it shows us about how different Jesus' vision is. Um, he gives us a plan for greatness, greatness defined by him. He gives us some practices for greatness, and then he shows us the power for it. Okay, so first let's look at the plan for greatness. You know, it might be helpful um, to just think about how we might naturally plan to become great if it were up to us. I mean, we would want to amass power, would want to gain recognition and status and prestige, would want to beef up our resumes. I mean, generally, we think that the path to greatness uh, moves up and to the right. But that's not the way it works with Jesus. Jesus says, let this sink into your ears. I mean, the implication is this is going to be hard for us to hear. And then he again reminds us that he is on the way to suffering and death. Let's be honest, we don't want this to sink into our ears. We don't want to embrace this path. And so at this point, an argument breaks out among the disciples about who is the greatest among them, who has the most clout, who is the most significant, the most impressive, which one's going to get the most reward in God's kingdom. And, and the irony is just thick, right? Because Jesus is going to the cross. I mean, he's told the disciples what it means to follow him. And, and it's at this point that they begin arguing about who is the greatest. So what does Jesus do? Uh, he responds first with action, which we'll talk about in a second. But I want to I look first at what he says, because this gives us his plan for greatness. Notice that he doesn't tell the disciples that their question about greatness is wrong. 
actually he implicitly affirms their desire for greatness. It's like he says, oh, so you want to be great? Well, that's that's fine. That's good. That's actually not a bad desire because uh, I created you for greatness. I want you to be great. But Jesus says, the plan for greatness is not at all what you think it is. He says, he who is least among you is the one who is great. In Mark's gospel, Jesus adds this. He says, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. You see, that's a very different plan. In fact, we might say that the plan is the exact opposite of the plan that the disciples have in mind. Jesus is taking their vision for greatness and completely flipping it on its head. He says that in his kingdom, the way to be the greatest is to be the least. The way to strength is through weakness. The way to fullness is is through emptying yourself. The way to be happy is actually to seek the happiness of other people. The way to freedom is through radical submission. The way to find yourself is not to put yourself first, but to pour yourself out in service to God and others. I mean, the way up, Jesus is saying, is actually the way down. In other words, Jesus is proclaiming the humility of discipleship. In our kingdom, the greatest is the one who can get the most votes, the one who can amass the most power and wield it against his opponents. But in Jesus' kingdom, the greatest is the one who makes himself small. The greatest is the one who serves. The greatest is the one who puts everyone else first. And so that's the plan, that greatness comes through radical, other-oriented humility. Now, before moving on, let me just point out one of the beautiful things about this plan that Jesus has. It's radically inclusive. I mean, this is for anyone and everyone. By contrast, the world's plan for greatness is pretty exclusive. I mean, not many of us have what it takes to be a CEO of a mighty company. Chances are uh, fairly good that none of us will ever hold high political office. We're not going to have monuments made in our image. I mean, the world's plan for greatness is really only available to a very small minority who have the strength to pull it off. But Jesus' plan is for you and for me, because every single one of us can serve another human being. We can put the needs of others before our own. We can become small. We can respond to Jesus' invitation and follow him on the way of humble, self-giving love. Well, that's the plan that Jesus has for greatness. It's this this plan of, of humility. The passage also gives us some practices for greatness. In other words, um, doing these things will help us to become great, which is to say doing these things will help us to become small and last and least, which is to say uh, these practices help us with humility. So uh, here's the first practice. Receive a child. Look again at verses 46 through 48. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest, but Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. Now, we read passages like this and we think, ah, you know, this is very sweet. Jesus loves children. 
And that's true that Jesus does love children. But that's not the point here. That's not what the disciples would have been thinking. Uh, There's a huge difference between our society and their society regarding children. You know, our society is kind of uh, children and youth centric. If you have kids in your family, chances are that um, much of your life revolves around them. Uh, think, Think about how much our entire culture, our entire society is shaped by what kids care about. But there are two things to keep in mind about that ancient society of Jesus' day. First, infant mortality rates would have been very high. And second, there was this high demand for human labor. I mean, people needed to be working, not caring for kids. And and for those reasons combined, I mean, people just weren't very sentimental about children. Children didn't really help the economy of the family in any way. Um, They they were actually a drain on resources. You know, until kids reach, reach a certain age, they aren't all that useful. I mean, they don't contribute in any kind of productive way. So back then, when you receive a child and welcome a child, you don't really get much out of the deal. And it's different today, but not entirely different. I mean, <laughs> there are, there's a growing body of, of scientific um, studies that suggest that having children actually decreases happiness. If you've ever changed a dirty diaper, you know this. I mean, the kid probably didn't even say thank you. But here's the real point. Uh, No one receives a child because of what they can do for you. If you receive a child, uh, you're doing it for them. And so Jesus is talking about something that goes way deeper than simply being nice to kids. He's talking about receiving and welcoming and embracing the people around us who are the last and the least the people who are usually overlooked, the people who don't appear to be very useful, the people whose company won't do much to increase our social status, the people who really don't have all that much to give us, or so we think. Jesus says, this is what great people do. They receive and they welcome and they embrace people who, according to the world's measurements of greatness, aren't great at all. Truly great people serve and love the last and the least. You know, all of us have this tendency to enter into relationships based on what we're going to get out of them. We size each other up and we kind of go through this little cost-benefit analysis based on our perceptions of each other. Will being in relationship with this person really benefit me or not? But you don't do that with a child, not really. I mean, simply because there's no need to do it with a child. According to worldly ways of measuring, and especially so in Jesus' day, the cost of receiving a child always outweighs the benefits. Receiving children is a practice that inherently involves service, and so great people do it. That's what Jesus is saying. They serve and they love the last and the least. Now, Family, it would be a missed opportunity here if I didn't remind you that as our in-person attendance begins to increase through the spring and into the summer, we really could use some more volunteers to step up with our children's ministry. I mean, that's a need that our church community has right now. There's a, there's like this very um, practical, concrete way for you to consider receiving children into your life. But more than children, just think, Who are the last and the least that God has put into your life? Um, 
Who is Jesus calling you to receive and welcome and embrace? Okay, so that's one practice. Receive a child. Here's another. Accept an outsider. Look at verses 49 and 50. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him. For the one who is not against you is for you. So what's going on here? I mean, it kind of looks like John might have a legitimate concern. I mean, apparently there were people who weren't following Jesus, but who were going around doing um, things like casting out demons in Jesus' name. I mean, they haven't been with Jesus. They haven't been authorized to do this by Jesus. They haven't been sent out by Jesus. And so who knows how faithful these people are? I mean, they could be leading people astray. They could be bearing false witness about Jesus. They might hurt Jesus' reputation. There could be all kinds of problems with these rogue disciples wandering around the countryside. And so Jesus' disciples come across one of these guys and they try to stop him. But look carefully at the real complaint. I mean, we might expect John to say to Jesus, we tried to stop him because he was not following you. But instead, John says, we tried to stop him because he was not following with us. In other words, John and the disciples aren't really concerned about Jesus' reputation. They're worried about themselves. They've devoted all of this time to following Jesus, learning from him, being equipped by him for ministry. And now they find this other guy who's off by himself doing the same kinds of things that they're doing. You can imagine how that might aggravate their pride. They're concerned about their own reputation, their own glory. So how does Jesus respond? He says, don't stop him. He's doing a good thing in my name. If he's not against you, he's for you. Casting out a demon is a good thing. There's no reason to stop that. I mean, think about how humble Jesus' attitude is compared to the attitude of the disciples. The disciples are worried because this guy is off doing good things and he's not part of their group. He's not following with them. Jesus says, it's okay. See, um, his pride isn't offended at all. Jesus just accepts this outsider and affirms the good he's doing. So the second practice is about our attitude toward people who aren't part of our tribe, who aren't in our immediate community. Can we find ways to accept them and affirm the good work that they're doing? Think of how much more unified the body of Christ would be if, if different Christian communities were willing to just accept and affirm each other like this. They might not be with us, but they're doing really good things in Jesus' name. And so we can love them and affirm them even though they're not following with us. See, that's an attitude that requires a good bit of humility because it takes us out of the center and it puts Jesus in the center. It's the attitude that Jesus has and it's the attitude he wants us to practice. So receive a child and then accept an outsider. Third, a third practice, abandon the way of violence. Look again at verses 51 through 55. I won't read it again, but it's that place where James and John want to call down fire on a Samaritan village that doesn't receive Jesus. They want to violently punish the Samaritans for their failure to respond to Jesus in the right way. Now remember, the Samaritans and the Jews were bitter enemies of one another. They had different politics. 
a different religion, very different visions for how the world should be. And so John and James are saying, Lord, wouldn't it be right for us to destroy them? I mean, we're only 12 guys, and so we couldn't take on this whole village, but, but we've got access and we can drop the bomb, the fire from heaven. Shouldn't we do that? Shouldn't we wipe them out? And Jesus rebukes them. It's a harsh term. It's the same thing that Jesus does to demons. He rebukes them. Because James and John want to accomplish the mission through force and violence. That's how they expect God's kingdom to come and God's will to be done. But Jesus' plan is to bring God's kingdom through weakness and even suffering and rejection and death. See, those are two very different ways of pursuing God's kingdom, two very different ways of expecting God's will to be done. And so the question for us to ask, I think, is like, who do we perceive to be our enemies? And in what ways are we tempted to wish them ill? Uh, Like, in what ways would we want to call down fire from heaven against them? And then can we hear the rebuke of Jesus? I mean, Jesus is, is saying very clearly, this is not the way of the kingdom. Instead, our call is to deny ourselves and to take up the cross daily and to follow after him. So receive a child and accept an outsider and family abandon the way of violence, even if it's only um, abandoning it in your heart. I mean, most of us aren't walking around hurting people, but sometimes we kind of wish that we could, or we wish that God would, and we need to abandon that whole way. Well, I said earlier that the beautiful thing about Jesus' plan for greatness is that anyone can do it, but now we might not be so sure about that. I mean, Who among us can actually live like this? Where can we find the power to live this humble life of sacrifice and service that Jesus is calling us to? Well, I've heard someone say um, that we become what we behold. And I think that there's like a profound theological truth in that, that we we become uh, what it is that we behold. And so for a minute or two, let's behold Jesus together. Look at who he is. Look at what he does. You know, he's the one who says, receive a child, love the last and the least. How can we do that? Well, look at him. Jesus receives and he welcomes and he embraces us. The cost-benefit analysis for him is not that great, which means that when he welcomes us and embraces us, he's doing it simply because he loves us, not because of what he gets out of the deal, simply because um, he loves us. Jesus says, accept an outsider. Well, how can we do that? Behold Jesus. Here's the one who loves us and who loved us even when we weren't following him. He moved to save us even when we were much worse than rogue disciples. I mean, we were his outright enemies. And still, he accepted us. Jesus says, abandon the way of violent force. How can we do it? Well, here's the one who could have called down fire at any time on any of his enemies, including you and me. But instead, he becomes weak 
before his enemies. He becomes weak for us. The, the question is, do we want to be great? Well, Jesus says, um, whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. And so start there. Start by receiving Jesus Christ. This might actually be the ultimate act of humility. Because what are we saying when we really receive Jesus? We're saying that yes, Jesus is a model for us. He shows us how to receive the last and the least, how to accept outsiders, how to abandon the way of violence. But more than an example, Jesus is our savior. See, more than a model, he's our, he's our rescuer. You know, there's this prideful part of all of us that wants our savior to be someone mighty and magnificent, someone like Superman. A Superman savior is like us, but way more powerful, right? Faster than a speeding bullet, stronger than a locomotive, able to leap tall buildings in a single bound. A Superman savior implies that we more or less have it all together, but we're just not quite strong enough to get the job done. But Jesus comes to us without superpowers. He comes to us exactly like us, only faithful. I mean, he's more truly human than we are, not less, which means that he comes to us in humility. He comes to us in weakness. He comes to us as the last and the least. And this family is true greatness. This family is the majesty and glory of God. You know, a Superman savior wouldn't die. Superman savior can't die, but Jesus can and he does. And the message of the cross is that this is what our salvation requires, not an act of some superhuman, but the death of the son of God, who is exactly like us, only faithful at every point where we fail. Family, receive him. Here is the Lord of glory, who is also the last and the least. He's the last and the least precisely because he is the Lord of glory. And he's eager to share with us his power for greatness, this power for self-giving, humble love. Believe the gospel in Jesus' name. Amen.